Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. For message notes and links to big things going on at Hope, check out the notes section below. When you're done listening to this episode, take a minute to follow us here, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content, additional resources, and more. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Welcome those joining us online at all of our campuses and in the room right now. I brought something special with me today. Can you guys see this? Anybody? Maybe you can get it on camera and kind of see it. You guys just yell out. What do you think it is? Pine cone. Close. It is a cone. It's not from a pine. This is actually a cone from the biggest sequoia in the world. I think we have a picture of it. It's the General Sherman tree. And uh, I got this cone when we um, went to go visit Sequoia National Forest um, this year. And uh, it's not illegal for me to have. I don't think there were lots of them hanging out on the ground. And I just picked a few up as kind of souvenirs. Um, So it's kind of weird that this small little cone um, is what gives birth to that huge, gigantic tree. Um, If you don't know, uh, Sequoia's Um, grow in a very specific environment. So anywhere between 5,000 and 7,000 feet in elevation and just in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So um, these amazing trees are just in 77 different groves in California and they can get up to 250 feet tall. Um, They can get to 30 feet in diameter and they can live well beyond 3,000 years. Uh, So one of the oldest ones is about 3,500 years old right now. And they're like national treasures. And so the Park Service takes them very, very seriously. Um, They do everything they can to protect them. They don't want anything to to harm them or make them go extinct, which they almost did because we stupid Americans, when we found them, we decided to cut them all down and make toothpicks out of them. That's the only thing that you can do with the wood, apparently. Um, Which leads me to the reason that I brought this up here. Uh, One of the things that scientists and preservationists got very, very wrong um, about sequoias was their relationship to fire. You would think, right, that fire and trees don't get along, right? Like, what do you put in the campfire? What do you put in your fireplace at home? Pieces of trees, right? And you put it in, it goes bye-bye. So you think that if you really wanted to protect the sequoias, if you really wanted what was best for them, if you really wanted to ensure that they thrive, the first thing you would do is protect them from fire. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. But what we learned when we were there is that that's the last thing that you should do. Because believe it or not, um, fire is actually beneficial to sequoias. There's actually a whole exhibit when we went there about how sequoias need fire to survive. They really need a really good fire every three to five years. It's the fire that actually the heat from it um, cracks this cone open and allows the seeds to fall in the soil. And it's the fire that gets rid of all the brush and the plants on the forest floor. So it takes away water competition and it allows sunlight to get to the seedling once it takes root. And uh, it actually provides nutrients to the soil in the form of ash. And actually, uh, sequoias have built in, um, they're, 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 they have protection against fire. Their bark is a foot and a half thick. And if you touch the tree, it's spongy. And so they're very, very fire resistant. I could keep going. I have so many sequoia tree facts, but I'll leave you with that. Um, but so for, uh, we didn't know that about 100 years ago. And so for about a century, well-meaning people tried to protect these trees from what they saw as dangerous fires. But this is what led to a lot of trees being killed. 
If you don't let a fire burn every three to five years, instead you wait 50 or 60 till it's a fire that you can't stop or hold back. Well, there's so much fuel. There's so much more trees and bushes around the bases of the sequoia that these are the types of fire where the, the heat is so intense and it reaches so high up to the branches and the leaves. That's the type of fire that kills the sequoias. And so what scientists have learned is that we tried to protect the sequoias from the threat of fire only to realize they needed fire to thrive. Like our desire to keep them safe put them in harm's way. What seemed like something dangerous, something bad, something to avoid was actually needed for them to thrive, for them to experience new life. And now if you go to the park, on most days when you close your car door, what you'll smell is you'll smell the smell of smoke in the air because the uh, Forest Service workers there light fires in different places every single year so they can have these controlled burns. You imagine that? The people that are tasked with Making sure that these trees flourish and thrive are the ones that are setting fire to their little groves every single year because that's what they need. It's, it's good for them. I was actually talking with my middle child, Reese, this week about this. She remembers all this fire and sequoia stuff. She was with us on our RV trip. And so I just asked her, hey, I'm teaching about this this week. Imagine something crazy with me. Imagine that sequoias had a brain, like they could think and they could make decisions. And then imagine that they were mobile that they could pick up their roots and just go wherever they wanted. Do you think that the sequoias would run away from these fires if they had that? And my daughter's a lot smarter than me, and she'd say no. But if they had a nervous system, then maybe they would. If they could feel pain, then maybe they would. And so we, we kind of discussed it, and we came to the conclusion that maybe, okay, probably the first time a fire went through, a lot of the trees would get up and run away. Then eventually some trees would just stay because there are some benefits to it, but they would just be angry and bitter, like stop trying to kill me, little forest service person. But there would be a group of trees that would learn that fire was good. That was even great. And some might even look forward to the fire every few years, even with the pain, because they would learn um, that it allows them to experience new life. That's what they were made for. Well, that's the question I want to talk about today. That's the topic. How... How should we respond to the painful moments that God allows in our lives? How, how do we respond when God brings or allows something difficult or frightening or even harmful into his plan for us? Because we have a few options. Like, should we try to run away? Should we try to avoid it at all costs? Should we just seek comfort above everything? Or should we stay, even though it is painful, but just be angry and bitter with God and let that resentment between us grow? Or is there a different way? Well, to answer that question, we're going to turn to the, Mos to the, the, the wisdom of a guy named Moses. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 1, chapter 8, and then chapter 32. Um, as I thought about it this week, Moses, I think, spent the most time in the wilderness than any other Bible character I could think of than Isaac and Jacob, who kind of lived there. Uh, Moses spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness as a shepherd before God called him um, to, to, to play a part in rescuing Israel. And then he wandered around in the desert for 40 more years with Israel. And that last 40 years of his life when he was with Israel, it's recorded in four books of the Bible. It takes four whole books to tell the story. It's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Exodus kind of traces the story of Moses' birth, how he's called to Egypt, how he leads Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. Then that book ends. Then Leviticus is all about what God told Moses on Mount Sinai, the law, 
how they should worship him. And then Numbers is all about them leaving Mount Sinai and trying to put the law into practice as they marched around the desert for about 38, 39 years. And then Deuteronomy, you may not not know this, but it's Moses' final speech right before he dies and the Israelites leave the wilderness and enter the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is a beautiful book because it's the summary of all the lessons that he learned. It's really a sermon on everything that happened in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And that made my job really easy this week because Moses already wrote my sermon for me. Uh, But that's how the book starts off. He says, these are the words that Moses spoke to all the people of Israel while they were in the the wilderness east of the Jordan. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. They were uh, camped in the Jordan Valley. He explains exactly where. Then verse 2, he says, normally it takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to where they're at. Verse 3, but 40 years after Israelites uh, left Egypt, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses addressed the people of Israel, telling them everything the Lord had commanded them to say. And if we were to continue reading, we won't, but I encourage you, definitely sit down and read the book of Deuteronomy this week. What you would see is a sermon that lasts for 33 chapters. And he goes over everything that happened through the wilderness wanderings. And there's so many different things, but really in Moses' mind, it's just one story. It's the story of how God took Israel and changed them from these disobedient, immature, faithless group of people into a group of people that were faithful and that were mature and that were obedient and that were hopeful and that were courageous and that chased hard after God. And the Bible points out over and over again that the same process that God used to change Israel is the same process he uses in in my life and your life. The same means, the same way he went about transforming Israel is the exact same plan that he has to transform you and me. And the cool thing about the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses really highlights the means by which God does this. He highlights the tools that he uses, the experiences that he puts them in. And what stands out as you read through Deuteronomy, these things that God uses are rarely pleasant. The things that bring about the most transformation are the things that are usually the least fun. And I won't go into detail about all of them, but if you know the Bible, just kind of think through it. Or even if you've seen like the Disney movie uh, when God kind of frees um, the Israelites, think back of some of the things that he uses. What's, what's the first means by which he uses as he's taking Israel in this process? It's the ten plagues, right? It doesn't say the ten parties. It's the ten plagues. And these plagues aren't like ice cream falling down from the sky or... Uh, the Nile River turning into Hawaiian punch, right? It might have looked like Hawaiian punch, but it wasn't. It was water to blood. It was frogs. It was gnats. Can you imagine like waking up with frogs everywhere, like frogs in your pillowcase and in your nose and on your toothbrush? That's gross. And the Israelites had to go through those first three plagues. And then they watched as God brought more plagues for Egypt, the flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally death of the firstborn. And what you see is Moses begins to recount how God transformed them. God doesn't use the things we commonly think of. He's not using sermons. He's not using small group studies. No, he's using like skin diseases and natural disasters. Well, the next thing that God does is what? We talked about this two weeks ago. After Pharaoh frees them, he he takes them on a detour and leads them to a dead end with the Red Sea, right? Where the angry Egyptian army are at their backs chasing them down and they have an impassable Red Sea right in front of them. He brings them into an impossible situation. 
I didn't share this two weeks ago, but a, a quartermaster for the army actually did some detailed studies of Israel's uh, wandering in the wilderness, and he got, has some data just to show how impossible the situation was. Um, Israel at this time was about two to three million people, and uh, he notes that they had to cross the Red Sea by night, which is scary as all get out. You ever like, gone swimming in the ocean at night? It's frightening. And if they walked through just double file, the line would have been 800 miles long, and it would have taken them 35 days and nights to get through. Right? That's an impossible situation. But God came through, right? The gap that he made in the Red Sea, apparently it had to be about three miles wide so that Israel could march through 5,000 abreast so they could get through it in one night. But see, it was because of that impossible situation that he brought them into that he was able to display his power in that way. Well, once they get in the wilderness, God just keeps going. And the first place he brings them to is not a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the desert, right? It's the wilderness. What's this, this whole series is all about. That is not where you want to bring three million people. Again, the quartermaster has figured out in order to feed this many people in the desert, it would require 1,500 tons of food every single day. That would require two freight trains about a mile long. To have enough firewood to keep, uh, to keep them warm and to cook, that'd be about 4,000 tons of wood. Again, that would require a one-mile-long freight train. Um, if they only had enough water to drink and do a few dishes, they would need 11 million gallons of water each day. That would necessitate a freight train with tank cars 1,800 miles long. And every single time they camped, they just wanted to take a nap or go to sleep, they would require a piece of land about 75 square miles, about two-thirds the size of Rhode Island. Like, logistically, the desert is not where you want to be. That's an intimidating, impossible situation. And so Moses knows that God's leading him there, and so he has all this stuff going through his mind, like, okay, we need fuel, we need food, but the most important thing we need is water. And if you remember, where does God lead them to first? He leads them in this little valley with a little pond, and the pond is filled with bitter water. The first place he leads them to is a poisoned lake. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine how the three million Israelites reacted when the first dude, like, bent down and tasted it and spit it out? Like, it's poison. Like, we're going to die. That's what they thought. God is trying to kill us. That's what they said. They were afraid. They were uncomfortable. They prayed for God. God, can you remove us from this circumstance? But he doesn't. He doesn't change that circumstance. And it's because he left them there that they're able to learn that he can provide for all their needs. Moses, he uses Moses to transform that bitter pond into fresh water. And you see this pattern start to take shape. The next place they, he takes them is a place with no food. <laughs> there's no veggies. There's no fruits. There's no wild game. He takes away all the means by which they could feed themselves, and he puts them in this desperate situation. And again, he uses that discomfort. He uses that confusion to teach them that he'll supply. That's where he rains down the manna and the quail. And we could go through story after story right after this. He tells them to pack up, and they've been walking. They get thirsty again, and this time he doesn't lead them to a poison pond. Praise the Lord. Instead, he leads them to a big boulder in the middle of all this sand. He's like, I heard that you were thirsty. Here you go. And they're like, what are we going to do with a rock? But from that rock, from that desperate situation, right, Moses strikes it. And millions of gallons of fresh water pour out, and their, their thirst is quenched. And as Moses continues, we see God using snakes, poisonous ones, Venomous, sorry, there's a difference. Uh, scorpions, 
We see him using a defeat in battle. Uh, we see him using these sinkholes that just swallow people up. You know what we don't see God using a lot in the Exodus narrative? Sermons. Small group studies. Positive, encouraging Christian radio. <laughs> they had two songs. You can read about them in Exodus. They had the Song of Miriam, which was just three lines. And then they had the Song of Moses, which was like a prog rock anthem that was like 17 minutes long. They couldn't remember all the words, right? But... You don't see God using like vacations or spiritual retreats. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad. They're not. All of those things are good things. They help you grow closer to God. They help transform you. And Israel got some good things. They got the word of God. I mean, that's important. Um, for the first time ever, they could read it and study it. They got sermons from Moses. They got some worship services around the tabernacle. They did get some of those things. Those things did help them grow and change. But here's the point. So did a lack of water. So did no food. So did plagues of frogs and gnats. So did the impossible and the scary and the frightening and the hopeless situations. All those things that we try to avoid, all the things that we think of as bad, all the things that we ask God to protect us from, he uses as the means to transformation and to growth. And it's through all these hard things that God teaches Israel some of their most important lessons, lessons they couldn't have learned any other way. And Moses kind of recounts dozens of these lessons in the book of Deuteronomy. I just jotted, jotted down a few. They learned that the Lord's presence is sufficient for their protection and their provision. How do, you, how do you learn that God can protect you? Well, you need to be put in a place where you need his protection, right? They learn to not depend on their own power or wisdom or strength, but on God's. How do you know that you can trust God's power? because you're in a place of weakness, and he comes through. They learn the blessings of obedience, and you learn that by the failure of disobedience. They learn the character of God, like who God was, and you can't really learn that until you learn who you are not. And if God would have just kept them in this comfortable situation, they would have never learned those things. In fact, Moses kind of summarizes this. He says in Deuteronomy 8, remember, he says, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. He did that. But then he fed you with manna, food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't blister or swell. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. He says, Israel, you're about to enter the promised land, and you have to keep it in your memory. Think back on all of those hard things, all those things you got angry with God for, all those things you prayed for him to take you out of, they, were, they ended up for your good. And Israel needs to remember this. Moses really, really needs to stress this truth because Israel, like us, has a really bad habit of fighting against God whenever he turns the heat up, whenever he brings just the, the slightly um, uncomfortable thing into our lives. Time and time again, over and over again, they say, we would like to leave here and we would like to go back to Egypt to slaves. They say, God, just take us back. Or when they can't get out of it over and over and over again, they get angry with God. They question his motives. They, they doubted his plan. In fact, the psalmist is writing about this time period, and he says this, God split the rocks in the wilderness, gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But 
they, Israel, continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God and they said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Look at this place. <laughs> can God really supply my needs? You ever ask that question? Are you asking that question right now because you're in the midst of a hard path? How can any good come of this? How can God allow this? God, why did you lead me this way? God, can I even trust you? God, are you really real? See, if you've ever asked those sorts of questions or you're asking them right now, you're not alone. But what I found is that the longer and longer you follow Jesus and the more often this uncomfortable and uncomfortable and uncomfortable situations arise and the more... Um, you're aware of how God works in the life of the followers, I think slowly as your life goes on, those questions don't ever go, ever go away. Those questions are still there. They just get kind of less and less, and they transform into something else. And I saw a beautiful picture of this in a book that I was reading recently. It's called Out of a Far Country. It's written by a mother and a son. Um, the mom writes one chapter, the son writes the next. The mom writes one chapter, the son writes the next. And it goes over this nine-year process where Jesus... Um, captures both their hearts and they become Christ followers. It's a rough book. Um, Christopher's the son, Angela's the mom. A lot of it's about Christopher's sexuality. I wouldn't recommend it for elementary schoolers, but if you're a middle schooler, high schooler, I really would recommend you read it. Um, the very first chapter, the mom's an atheist, so is Christopher, and uh, she decides she wants to commit suicide um, based a lot on her son's sexuality. And so um, she gets on a train one day and she's getting ready to go kill herself. And she says, you know what? I should probably talk to a priest just in case there is a God. Um, and so he gives her a pamphlet on Jesus. And on the train where she's going to go say goodbye to her son forever, um, she reads the pamphlet and she accepts Jesus and realizes that he's real. And um, the rest of the book is really about her growth and her efforts to show her husband and her son how beautiful Jesus is. She starts this little prayer closet in their guest shower because her husband doesn't want to see her praying. So she kind of pulls the curtain and prays every single day. God, do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring my son and my husband to you. Well, Chris, Christopher's life goes from bad to worse. He gets involved in the drug scene in Atlanta. Um, he becomes a pretty high profile drug dealer. He gets addicted um, to speed and to meth. And eventually he's arrested. And I want to read to you what she wrote um, when he called the first day that he was in jail. Um, her phone rings. It's a collect call from the county prison in Atlanta. Will you accept this? And she says, yes. And he says, Mom, I'm in jail. And she says, I paused, uncertain of what to say. I'd never expected that he would wind up in jail. I never even had known anybody who'd been in jail. Never before had I seen or driven past a jail. I just imagined thieves and crooks and murderers and rapists in this dark dungeon. And it was hard for me not to be scared for my son's life. And yet... I knew that somehow God was in control. Besides, I had prayed, Lord, do whatever it takes. So they have a short conversation, hang up the phone. She writes, as I hung up the phone and the tears welled up in my eyes, I knew that I had to look beyond my present circumstances, look beyond today's storm, look beyond the trial I was in, and instead rejoice. I remember Romans chapter 5, verse 3, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance is character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Listen to this. I felt compelled 
to thank God for what he was doing in Christopher's life, even though I hurt for him like never before. And I knew without a doubt, with complete certainty, that this was God's answer to my prayers. Count your blessings, name them one by one, went through my head again. Yes, I thought, that's what I must do. So I went into my husband's business office, saw an adding machine, you guys remember those? And I pulled a small piece of adding machine tape and grabbed a pen, and I scribbled down the first blessing so I wouldn't forget that God was still at work. She writes this, Christopher is in a safe place, and he called us for the first time. And a warmth and indescribable peace enveloped me as I closed my eyes and thanked God. And there's actually a picture of her holding up all the blessings that she wrote over the course of the years he was in prison, just one after the other. Um, She's actually invited to be a witness during his sentencing trial where she's supposed to plead for the judge's mercy and a lenient sentence, and that's not what she does. Uh, She actually gets on the stand, and she asks the judge, Judge, I ask that you don't give Christopher too long of a sentence, and I ask that you don't give Christopher too short of a sentence. I ask that you give him a sentence just long enough that he would surrender his life to God. And that's what happens. Um, he gets sober. He can't use in prison. He starts going to a Bible study. He accepts Jesus. They ask him to lead a Bible study one time, and he loves it so much. They ask him to do it every single week. He feels the call to ministry. When he gets out, he actually gets accepted to seminary. And to this day, he's a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and he speaks all over the world. And it's all because of prison, because God allowed him to go through that hard and that lonely place. And when um, she was actually, Angela was asked to go to his um, sentence, his hearing right before he got let out of prison. They might let him out early. She, She writes this, I told the court that I represented my entire family in speaking about the change in Christopher's life. I told of my prayers for God to turn Christopher's life around and about the conversations we'd had, the Bible study Christopher was leading in prison, and the leadership role he had taken among his fellow inmates. And I explained that I had seen wisdom and understanding in Christopher where before I'd only seen loss and confusion. But that's not all I had to say to the judge. I turned to him and said, thank you for the sentence you gave Christopher. We have seen the positive impact it's had on him. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. That's the third response. Instead of running away or just getting consumed by anger and bitterness, we we just learn to praise God for whatever he brings into our life. Um, This year, I started experiencing um, anxiety. Never experienced that before. If you would have come up to me like four years ago and said, Chase, I'm really struggling with anxiety, I was like, that's weird. I don't, I don't know why you feel that way. Like, just don't drink so much coffee. Go see a counselor. Um, then I preached on it two years ago and was like, oh, this is a real thing. Um, I got a little bit of empathy. And um, according to God's plan, um, I got struck with it this year. And it actually, um, one of the first few times happened on this stage. There's not video of it, but if you're at first service at Raleigh, Um, a few months ago, um, actually more than a few months ago, I started getting dizzy and getting nauseous and getting, my heart was beating and I felt like I was going to throw up. And so I had to get a chair and I tried to finish my sermon and I kind of did. And then I couldn't do the second service. I was like, well, that was weird. Didn't think anything of it. Fast forward to this summer and I was here in this building at Raleigh and I thought for sure I was having a heart attack. Um, A panic attack hit. Uh, My dad has had a heart attack. So has my grandmother. So has my grandfather. And uh, I ran down the stairs and one of our IT guys, Chris Strait, was here. He's like, you okay? I'm like, I think I'm going to die. Can you take me to the hospital? So he did. He rushed me to wake med and uh, after lots of tests and thousands of dollars, uh, they told me, no, your heart's fine. It's just a panic attack. Um, And it's, mine's purely physical. It's not mental. I don't toss and turn at night. I just 
have panic attacks now. And I've tried a lot of stuff. I've reached out to a counselor this week. I'm working on it. But um, most of the time, I have been praying, God, would you take this away? And I've asked my parents, and I've asked my wife, and I've asked all my friends and family, could you just pray that God would remove this from my life? And I have been angry. I'm like, this is a horrible thing for me to have. I've got to get on stage a lot. Um, but just in preparation for this message, I started um, in my journal this week. I said, you know what? How has God used this? How, how is God bringing good out of this? And I started to make a list, and I was surprised by how long it got. Um, I'm praying more now than ever before, um, which sounds bad for a pastor, but I am. God, please take this from me. Uh, I'm open and honest with my wife about my struggles. I've learned where my limits are, um, which is a good thing to learn. I've learned that I have to pull back and take a break, which is probably really healthy. Um, I've learned that God has a sense of humor. I mean, come on, it's funny. It's like the worst thing a public speaker could have. It's panic. Like, besides projectile vomiting, like, that's funny. If you panic attacks, you ever had a panic attack in front of 10,000 people? I have. It's not fun, right? And I started making this list, and it's completely changed the way that I'm, I still want to go to counseling. I still want to figure out a way out of it, but I trust that God can bring good out of it. And that, that's how Moses ends this whole book. In Deuteronomy 32, it's a song of praise. He looks back on all these hard things that God has brought them through. I mean, pain, isolation, discomfort. And Moses is about to die and not be able to enter the promised land because of a mistake he made. And yet this is what he says. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious is our God. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. And he says this, for the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. He found them in a desert land, in an empty howling wasteland, and yet even there he surrounded them and watched over them. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes, like an eagle that rouses her chicks and hovers over her young. So he spread his wings to take them up and carried them safely on his pinions. The Lord alone guided them. They followed no foreign gods. He led them ride over the highlands and feast on the crops of the fields. He nourished them with honey from the rock and olive oil from the stony ground. And what this is is a big thank you. He says, God, thank you for bringing me to the rock. I didn't like it the first time you did it. I didn't know what in the world you were doing. I was angry. I was bitter. But I learned there's honey there. There's sweetness there. So thank you for that. He says, God, thank you for the stony ground. Thank you for the dry seasons. I was so thirsty. I didn't see it in that moment, but it's in that place that I learned to drink from the living well. And that's the place that we have to get to where we say, God, thank you for that rough spot in our marriage because in it, I came face to face with my sin and my insecurities. And now my marriage is stronger than ever. Father, thank you that my child is experiencing the consequences for their dis disobedience. And I hate it and I hurt for them, but you're gonna use this to bring them closer to you, right? Father, thank you for this weakness because in it, I get to experience your strength. Thank you for this darkness because in it, your light shines brighter than ever. We just have to get to the place of Moses where we just believe by faith. God, nothing that comes from your hand can be bad because it's a loving hand. And you used a cross and you used a grave to bring about salvation and to bring about forgiveness. So even though I don't understand it, I know your character and I know your history. And I'm just going to praise you in the midst of it. That will transform your life. So what's it in your life? 
what's that hard situation? What's that thing you just wish more than anything God would remove? What's that circumstance that you've been praying for him to change? What's that place of weakness? What's that place of change? Would you today believe that because of his character and because of his history that we have in his word, that he could use it for his glory and his good? But more than that, would you be willing today to, to lay down your anger? to throw away that bitterness, to get rid of that distance that you have, those doubts and those fears. And instead, because you trust in his loving hand, would you be bold enough to praise him for it? Well, that's what we're gonna do at all of our campuses and online. I've asked the band to come and lead us in a special song, a song that you might heard on Christian radio and a song, if it's, it's new for most of us, you wouldn't understand any of the words, but it's based on Deuteronomy 32. And so now you will. And it's a moment for us online or our campuses to really just kind of lay all the anger down, lay, lay the bitterness down, and praise God for our words. And when we do, hoping that it brings our spirit along with it, our hearts along with it. So it's a moment that I want to I give us. And we'll do that in just a second. Let me pray over us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's given in love and that it's true. Father, would you do something special in this room and across all of our campuses? when we have tears of just relief that we don't have to get out of this situation and we don't have to ask why. All we have to do is trust and just lean on you and rest on you and watch as you move and you work and you ordain circumstances and you just make beauty and ashes into beauty and you bring death to life. So Father, we're expectant. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.